You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Professor Steve Sanders at the IU Maurer School of Law in the second edition of our special report, Civil or Not, the court case of Talevsky versus Marion in the debate over a private right to sue. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Election Day is coming up on Tuesday, November 8th. More information on what you will need to bring with you to the polls coming up next in your Statehouse Roundup. Good afternoon. This is the State House Roundup. I'm Cade Young. And I'm Abe Shapiro. Tuesday, November 8th marks Election Day. To vote, you will need to bring a photo identification. This includes a driver's license, a passport, a state ID card, or a military ID. A public student ID would also work as long as it displays your name, your photo, and an expiration date. Eligible voters in Indiana include U.S. citizens and residents of Indiana. You must be at least 18 years old to cast a ballot. People who are incarcerated after being convicted of a crime are not allowed to vote. Upon release, rights are restored and you are allowed to cast your ballot. You need to be registered in order to vote, though. To check your registration, visit indianavoters.com. Here you can also find your polling place, update your address, and more. More information available by contacting Monroe County Election Central at 812-349-2690 or email ljwilson at co.monroe.in.us. The League of Women Voters is providing nonpartisan information to the public on the upcoming election. Vote 411, the League's online portal, gives you factual data about candidates polling places, identification requirements, and more. More information available at vote411.org. That's all for your Statehouse Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Abe Shapiro. And I'm Cade Young. During the October 25th meeting of the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board of Trustees, MCCSC Director of Business Operations, John Kenny, outlined a recommendation to approve the 2023 budget. It has recommended the board adopt the resolution of appropriations and tax rates for the 2023 budget. It has further recommended the board adopt the resolutions approving the 2023 capital projects plan and the 2023 bus replacement plan. The board received information regarding the 2023 budgets on August 23rd, when advertisement of the budgets was approved. The 2023 budgets were reviewed again on September 27th, when a hearing on the budgets was conducted. 
No objections to the budgets, tax levies, or tax rates have been received by the school corporation. The board is required by Indiana statute to meet no later than November 2nd, 2022, for the purpose of adopting a budget for the upcoming year. Appropriate notices to taxpayers were published for the September 27th hearing on the proposed budgets and the time, date, and location of the meeting to adopt the proposed budgets and plan. Having met the statutory requirements regarding publication of the hearings on the proposed 2023 budgets and plans, the administration recommends the board approve resolutions adopting these budgets and plans. The school board approved next year's budget unanimously. Next, Dr. Deborah Prinkert and Dr. Aaron Stahlbaum gave a presentation about the professional learning equity goal in the school corporation's strategic plan. Dr. Prinkert explained the equity goal. As he mentioned, we're excited to be here to talk about equity goal number two. The rationale for this is to empower staff and school board through relevant learning experiences uniting these stakeholders around the MCCSC shared vision and work. And on the right-hand side, you can see kind of the schedule that we'll be using throughout this school year. Definition and context. We wanna make sure that we're all working from the same perspective. The professional learning results in equitable and excellent outcomes for all students when staff and school board are continuously immersed in professional learning cycles that prioritize rigorous content, transformational processes, a culture of collaborative inquiry, and of course, the structures necessary to prioritize professional learning. On the right-hand side, we have a word cloud. We did ask our administrators to write down some of their thoughts about professional learning. The words that are bold and bigger came up multiple times. So you can see teachers is a fairly large area there, PD, professional development, professional learning, staff, and of course, time is often a limitation for professional learning. So the outcomes um, that I wanna talk about, you may remember that doc, Dr. Hauswald had Adam Twilliger present uh, last month about equity, access and opportunity. And he spoke about maximizing student instructional time and increasing student academic results. We believe those same values are consistent for our professional learning, but we wanted to add two more, cultivating professional learning and securing structures for relevant and meaningful professional development. We have a brief narrative down there below that a system for professional learning ensures that all MCCSE stakeholders are engaged in professional development that prioritize personalized growth and continuously focus on equity and excellence for students, staff, and board members. Dr. Stahlbaum walked through feedback from the community regarding the school system's goals when it comes to equity in professional learning. She also read feedback from staff on the goal as mentioned in the strategic plan. We also, um, as with every uh, equity goal or every goal, not just equity, but every goal that we're presenting on, we asked for feedback. And so we had some community feedback provided to us in the form of statements. Some of those statements included, we need to invest in our teachers through professional development and compensation. Another statement of, I would like opportunities for staff to learn too. And then, of course, just I appreciate the academic and social opportunities for students at MCCSC and providing with educators with professional development will make those opportunities stronger. So we certainly appreciate that feedback provided from community members. We then gathered feedback from staff as well. 
that feedback came more in the form of statements than questions. We have generated some themes from those statements and themes of a need to continue to prioritize and personalize our PD offerings to ensure our PD is results-oriented, leveraging that collective knowledge that we know we have throughout MCCSC, and then to provide ongoing and job-embedded professional learning cycles. There are some quotations on the right. I will not read them on all. However, one of um, those that we chose as really encompassing what our strategic plan is about is that PL should match our philosophy of learning for students through access, options, opportunity, and choice. Dr. Stahlbaum asked the school board how they will engage in continuous training on their roles and responsibilities. Superintendent Dr. Jeff Hoswald responded. I can answer that, and board president sure can, and we can have a conversation. But the answer is, our board oftentimes has um, um, training throughout the year. We've kind of entered into a cycle of two of those a year. I know board members have asked for um, a specific training on kind of roles and responsibilities, and that oftentimes we schedule in January um, of um, of odd years when we have new board members take place. So we we do are working. We do have board learning opportunities. And I know we're working on expanding that. So um, I, I know that the board member was asking the question, but also was just wanting to make sure that when we within our strategic plan, the board has been very clear that when we talk about professional learning of staff and of our teachers, we make sure that we offer professional learning for the board. And I think we've kind of demonstrated that since the strategic plan has been created, and, and I think we'll continue to do so. During public comment, Bloomington resident Ruth I-8 raised questions about the new Student Equity Ambassador Program. She argued that students were not given a meaningful voice with the program. My name is Ruth Eit. I am a supporter of public education. I'm a member of the Moreau County NAACP. I'm concerned that our students of color are facing ongoing challenges within MCCSC. I spoke at the August board meeting, and during that meeting, I was very excited to hear about the new Student Equity Ambassador Program that would engage students and give them a meaningful voice in the development of anti-racism policies. At that meeting, I stated that I was a lifelong learner, and I am continuing to learn from the MCCSE students who are speaking up against racism. I have learned that the students were not involved in setting the schedule or the agenda for the Equity Ambassador Program. I have learned that the anti-racism policy proposed by some students earlier this year has not been discussed during the meetings and that the students have had very little time to speak and to be heard. I have learned that I must be reminded again and again that a timeline and format that I think is a good one often is not one that truly encourages open and honest discussions. These students are good teachers. I believe the MCCSC administrators and board do want the Equity Ambassador Program to succeed. I'm here today to ask the administration to engage the students in the entire process, including the planning, and to show up ready to listen to the students and to learn from them. The success of the program depends on both the students and the administration being accountable. Unless everyone is involved as a truly equal partner, I am afraid this program is going to do more harm than good. Please keep the community informed as you do this work. Our community is stronger when we learn from each other. Thank you for the work you do. 
the MCCSC School Board will meet again on Tuesday, November 15th. On October 25th at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, Engineering Field Specialist Jason Kerr asked the board to approve permits to continue the citywide fiber project. The areas include South Park Ridge Road, East Tamron Drive, East Janet Drive, and East Discovery Parkway. Uh, this will be inclusive of uh, mobile lane closures and sidewalk closures as the uh, project progresses, of course. And um, I did have notation from yesterday's work session about work times that was asked about. Uh, they are working 8 to 5, but we are under agreement that uh, within school zones, they will be 9 to 3, and that will be put into our actual permit as a uh, provision for them to follow. Uh, we did talk to them yesterday about that, and they totally agree with doing that. Uh, we're also going to try to get them a map of those school zones so they have that in effect as well. The board approved the permits unanimously. The board then heard from Director of Public Works Adam Wasson, who explained why the contract concerning bird scooters was pulled from the agenda. Um, after some communications from some city council members and others yesterday uh, about the renewals, um, city staff in coordination with the mayor's office and legal uh, decided that we were going to pull this from the agenda at this time while we do some further coordination with both the university and the city council. Um, Part of that's going to be some revision or evaluation of some data um, and uh, a combined conversation with the university and their team that are working on scooter issues. Um, so we're removing that for the time being. They would operate under their current license. Um, we're expecting that hopefully within two to four weeks we would have a kind of course of action for all three companies. Um, they're all up for renewals about the same time frame here over the next month or so. Uh, so we're hoping um, within the next two to four weeks we would bring those um, back in front of the board, bring something back in front of the board um, as after we kind of get our coordination back um, with the others. So uh, that's where it stands right now. Um, and we're in direct communication with all the companies. Um, you know, as Alex mentioned in yesterday's um, work session, you know, we're expecting as the temperatures get cooler to see less and less scooters. They'll be lowering their fleets and everything uh, this time of year. Um, it doesn't buy us time, but it allows us um, some time to, it, it's going to allow us some uh, a longer period over the winter to really dive deeper as well. But we plan to have something back for the board in the next several weeks. The next Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting will be held on Monday, November 7th, due to Election Day falling on the normally scheduled Tuesday meeting time. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Professor Steve Sanders. I don't know why. Professor Steve Sanders. I'm messing that up, okay? Professor Steve Sanders at the IU Maurer School of Law in our special report, Civil or Not, the court case of Tulevsky versus Marion in the debate over a private right to sue. We now turn to part two of that interview. Good evening and welcome again to Disabulletin. I'm Abe Shapiro. This evening we continue our discussion by asking Professor Sanders about Tulevsky's and Marion's Health and Hospital Corporation's arguments before the court. 
Professor Sanders also provides a history of the court's historical rulings regarding Section 1983, the statute that this case seeks to address. We turn now to that interview. Tlefsky is saying that 1983 provides implied rights, perhaps, even if it's not stipulated. It's an implied right to sue? So he's saying, he's saying I have a right, and what's implied is my, uh, my, my cause of action, my, my right to sue. In other words, there's, there's a, so this is getting into the weeds a little bit, in this, but it is an important thing to pursue. It's one thing to say I have a right. It's another thing to say I have what is sometimes called, a, rather than a right to sue, to avoid using the term right in two different senses, let's say I have a cause of action, I have the power to come into court. There are lots of ways in which federal laws often create certain obligations upon um, uh, uh, government entities uh, or, 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 or any kind of entity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if my rights are violated, I have uh, rights. So let me give you a quick example. So sure. federal privacy law, FERPA, the statute, the federal educational privacy law, you know, basically says, you know, Indiana University or, or really any university, it doesn't have to be a private university, can't just like willy-nilly share a student's grades or transcript or private information about them. That information is private and, and the university is obligated to maintain its confidentiality confidentially and only people with a need to know are entitled to receive it. Okay, let's say the university, I'm a student, the university gives out my information. You might think, oh, they violated my rights. I can sue in those circumstances, but no. Um, courts have pretty consistently said, you know, there may be, you know, the federal government can cut off the funds to that institution or can the federal government may have other ways of punishing that institution. But just because the federal government says you must keep this person's information private does not necessarily give that person a cause of action, a right to sue if it's violated. Um, and, and that's where I said the court's conservatives in, the, in recent decades have become much more interested in, main, in, in maintaining that boundary. Now, Congress could always say, and any student whose private information is revealed may come into court and file a lawsuit. If Congress does that, okay, that's fine. But courts should not imply that just because the law imposes certain obligations on the university, that a student's uh, a privacy is violated gets to sue. We don't want the courts to be used unless Congress has provided a clear authorization to sue. So that is related to this case, except in this case, Mr. Talevsky is saying, you know, it, it's not just that the federal law said, like, my information has to be kept private. It, it basically was more than that. It, it created rights. It used the term right um, or used language clearly implying that nursing home residents had specific rights under federal law. And that rights creating language together with 1983 that says if your rights under the constitutional laws are violated, you may sue, but that is sufficient. We're not, the court is saying, we're, the, the, Mr. Tlebsky's estate is saying, we're not implying a cause of action here. We're not implying a right to sue 
in a way that the court has been disapproving of. The statute creates rights, and 1983 itself provides the cause of action, provides the authorization to come into court. Well, let me ask you as well, with regard to, and I know that this has been a debate for some time, what would you say is the legal precedent in the past uh, regarding this issue of 1983? As I know that uh, there have been many uh, court cases that have shifted with regard to this issue in the past. Uh, What would you say has been the trajectory of it? Where has it shifted? Where uh, has it gone back? Has, you know, has it always been a one-sided definition of 1983? Well, so an interesting thing about 1983, what, what has come down to us today, what we refer to as 1983, is that actual language was approved by Congress back in 1871. For a lot of different reasons, it really never got much action. It didn't get used a lot. It wasn't until 1961 that a a very important case called Monroe versus Pape, it involved Chicago police breaking into a black man's home and doing all sorts of illegal things, searches and arrests and so forth. It wasn't until 1961 that the Supreme Court said, this opens, this statute opens the courthouse door to people like Mr. Monroe, who are victims of government abuse, to be able to file an, an action for damages and a request in federal court for damages. So the, the, the modern use and significance of 1983 as a weapon in the arsenal of civil rights lawyers to seek damages for people whose constitutional rights are violated, really that doesn't begin until relatively recently, 1961. So it's really a, a, a product of the last 60 years or so. And then it was in 1980 when the, the, when the Supreme Court agreed with the proposition that 1983 provided a cause of action, a right to come into court and sue for deprivations not only of constitutional rights, but of statutory rights as well, exactly the kind of thing we're talking about in this case. There were some later cases in the late 1980s and around 1990 that narrowed that principle a little bit, but it still arguably exists. The court has never completely backed away from that. Now, what was there in common in the 1960s and then in in 1980 when the court Uh, extended 1983 to statutory claims. That was a time when the Supreme Court was still much more, um, frankly, open to um, the creation of legal rights. Um, The the, uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation here says it's only when the rights revolution of the 1960s and 70s came into full force that the court began to expand access to courts through judicially implied private rights of action. Now, you and I might think, well, that's a good thing. I don't see anything negative about that statement. But, you know, in the eyes of judicial conservatives, this rights revolution, this idea of federal courts creating things that it was at best unclear that Congress intended to do, a more conservative Supreme Court, a more conservative federal judiciary has increasingly looked on that with skepticism. So I think I think the best understanding of this case before the Supreme Court is that when it comes to the state of current law, like what we have, what the Supreme Court said, not terribly recently, but, you know, 30, 35 years ago, is that Mr. 
Mr. Tulevsky still, you know, should have the right to sue. I think what's going on is Health and Hospitals Corporation and the um, organizations and interest groups that are supporting its position are trying to appeal to a more conservative Supreme Court to essentially narrow or eliminate the circumstances under which a lawsuit is possible here. Right. And so how did we get to this point where it was gradually narrowed over time? So prior to 1980s case, and, and what case was that specifically? What, what was the situation? Main, Maine versus Thibodeau, Thibodeau. Uh, which is a 1980 case, which said that, um, that, that, that the Section 1983 cause of action, which, remember, had only been really revivified less than 20 years ago and in 1961 with Monroe versus Pape, and the court is still trying to figure out what does this mean, what are the parameters of this right to sue. The court agreed that statutorily created rights were candidates for lawsuits as well in this case in 1980. But then, you know, the, the court in the, in the later cases that clarified that sort of said, you know, well, but, you know, it has to be really absolutely clear that the law was intended to create a quote-unquote right. In other words, there are lots of ways that federal law tells, you know, businesses and government agencies and individuals, you may do this, you may not do that. Um, but we're looking here for specific examples where a law not only dictates behavior or regulates behavior, but appears to create an individual right in someone. That's the argument here, is that the Medicaid law not just provides a flow of money from Washington to the Health and Hospitals Corporation. An essential part of that was to create rights in people who are living in those residencies. And so in later cases, the court became just more strict about sort of how we know when somebody is uh, uh, the, 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 the recipient of a, of a legal right under a statute, thus giving them the ability under 1983 to come into court. But the court never backed away from or repudiated the basic principle that 1983 may be used to vindicate and receive damages related to statutory rights as well as constitutional rights. It's just, I think, Health and Hospitals Corporation here is trying to, you know, take that somewhat narrowing, somewhat shrinking opportunity for suit and close it all together. I think that would be an unfortunate consequence of the of the case. And as is so often the situation, when things get to the Supreme Court, it's really no longer just a fight between one party and another. It's a fight about larger legal principles. And so um, if you look at the docket for the case, you see that Health and Hospitals Corporation is supported by uh, groups like the National Conference of State Legislatures, by the state of Indiana specifically, uh, by the American Healthcare Association. These are organizations who have their own institutional interests in limiting their exposure to lawsuits under laws like the Medicaid law. On the other hand, Mr. Tulevsky is supported by friend of the court briefs, amicus curiae briefs, from um, you know various civil rights organizations, from the American Public Health Association, uh, from the Trial Lawyers Association, um, you know the Indiana Disability Rights Organization, all organizations that have a larger institutional interest in 
keeping as broad a scope as possible for people to be able to file federal lawsuits. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems, encouraging independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature, The Disabilitan, was produced by our very own Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB programming online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters W as in water, F as in Frank, H is in Herald and B as in Boy, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB.